Good afternoon, Spokane. Welcome to Revolutionary Spirituality. I'm your host, Sandy Williams. You're listening to KYRSLP Spokane, heard on 89.9 FM, best heard on 92.3 FM here in Spokane, Washington, on this cold winter morning, afternoon. (laughs) Thank you for joining me today. And uh, I've been waiting for this guest since I had her on. Gosh, she was one of the first guests I had on way back when I first started the show. Marge Johnson is the assistant pastor at Westminster Congregational United Church of Christ. And we, it was months and months ago, we were talking about her ordination back then. And as a part of that discussion, she just sort of mentioned in passing a book. And I wrote it down. I jotted it down. And I've been waiting ever since to have her back on the show so we could have a conversation about that book. So I want to welcome you to the show. Um, And so um, why don't we start off with a recap for folks who perhaps didn't hear you when you were on the show last time. Just give us a little mini version of your journey and what got you to being a pastor at Westminster in Spokane, Washington. Specifically that part, huh? Specifically that part. How did you get to Spokane? I got to Spokane because as a kid, uh, we visited my uncle regularly down in the Tri-Cities. And I told my parents when I was probably 12 or 13 that I wanted to live in eastern Washington. And my dad said, when you're old enough to do that, you can. (laughs) So when I was in my mid-30s, I moved to Spokane. And that journey included an opportunity to work in a variety of human services capacities And this call to ministry never really went away. Mm -hmm. So while I've lived in Spokane, I had some further experiences that just said, you really need to do this, either kind of do it or move on. Uh And so I went to seminary, came back to Spokane, because I really think there's some great and good work to be done here in the community, um, on the whole of the community, Mm -hmm. for the good people, for the good order. And uh, so I came back to Spokane and began my ordination process through Westminster Congregational United Church of Christ. And you've been there since? I've been there as a member for five years. I've been ordained for two. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, and as a part of the conversation that we had last time when you were here, um, you mentioned this book. And I remember grabbing a pen because I don't know what it was about it. It was something about the title. And the book is called Stages of Faith. The Psychology of Human Development and Quest for Meaning, and it was written by James Fowler. Mm-hmm. And it was something about that title, Stages of Faith, um, that struck me, and I wrote it down, and I've been waiting for a conversation about that. So why don't we dive in, because it's, it's a fascinating book. Um, and I'll just read, um, I, I went to Amazon.com, and I just pulled up the little review that they had on the book. Um, And so I'm just going to really quickly read a little bit about what that said. Um, So it said, Dr. James Fowler has asked these questions and others like them of nearly 600 people. He talked to men, women, children of all ages from 4 to 88, including Jews, Catholics, Protestants, agnostics, and atheists. In many cases, the interviews became in-depth conversations that provided rare, intimate glimpses into the various ways our lives have meaning and purpose windows into what this book calls faith and building on the contributions of such key thinkers as Piaget, Erickson, and Kohlberg, Fowler draws on a wide range of scholarship, literature, 
and first-hand research to present expertly and engagingly the six stages that emerge in working out the meaning of our lives. So he talks about the six stages that people go through in terms of their spiritual development. That's what was really fascinating. So why don't you jump in and talk about, like, how did the book come to your attention and um, and why, why do you, why did, what impact did it have on you so that it sort of, uh, that you brought it up? Well, what I've learned over the years is that the faith journey really can be a quirky set of experiences. Some of them, I think some people might say, oh, that's just coincidence. I choose not to think that way, but to think that um, there is an order at play, and I don't know really who or what's in charge, but the fascinating piece about being able to roll with it mm-hmm. um, has been important. So my brother-in-law uh, came from a very conservative faith tradition himself in the Midwest and went into the Navy, went to the Naval Academy, served a tour of duty in the Navy on a nuclear sub based over on the west side of the state and felt this call to go to seminary. So he himself went to seminary um, in Minnesota and then took a position as a pastor of a church in Oregon with a rather conservative denomination. And when he was moving through his ordination steps, he told the board that he still had questions about some things and he was enjoying the journey and the opportunity to explore his faith through congregational experiences as well as his own development. And he and I had kept up a pretty uh, pretty ongoing stream of conversations about seminary because I had not yet begun my seminary mm-hmm. experience. But you were thinking about this. this. Okay. Yeah. I was still watching this. <laughs> See how it worked How's for this him. Guy putting all this together? <laughs> and knowing that my sister, who married Scott, um, was a very conservative one in our family who really holds to something that she insists still to this day is enough for her, which is the phrase, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Mm-hmm. And I've always raised my eyebrows at her like, Seriously? (laughs) So Scott and Susan are doing their thing. Scott goes to his ordaining board. They ask him several questions to clarify his role as a pastor. Is he ready for ordination? He admits he has questions. And they say, you can't have questions. You're the pastor. At which point he says, I think my work here is done and walks away. Wow. Not only does he walk away from that particular church situation, he moves back to the Midwest with my family, of course, my sister and her family, and um, begins this journey of what is this possibly about? And he was in his early 30s at the time, and I am older than he by five, six years. So, you know, I was doing my own faith journeying and watching with intrigue <laughs> <laughs> yes. and some some sense of hope that finally there's somebody else in the family who's drawn away from everything we thought we had to believe because that's what we'd been taught. Uh-huh. And uh, Scott called me up one day and said he was going to a great book group at the Unitarian Church in town said, whoa, how's that going over? (laughs) Knowing that Susan would be terribly distressed. And and she was fully recognizing that he had different needs spiritually. And I thought that was an incredible step of faith for her. So um, all that to say, Scott mentioned this book that he had been reading, and he had read it three times, and he had this sheet of things he wanted to send me about this overview. What did I think of it? And I thought, that's awesome. And so I started looking at those things and did probably similar to everybody who reads it, at least from a Christian perspective, is where do I fall in this? Yeah. Because there's a set of beliefs we are told that here's where we are. And when I got to a place where it insisted that most of us stay at at stage two or stage three, I started looking at my calendar thinking, but I'm older than that and I should be wiser than that. (laughs) And why did I stop asking questions? Which actually the reality for me was I had not stopped asking questions at all. Mm -hmm. I was in that place of really trying to reconcile who I am as a 
human being created in the image of the Holy One and saying, yes, but my church tradition says you aren't created in God's image because of this one element of your life, which Mm -hmm. that is being a lesbian. Mm -hmm. And so I was tussling a lot with my faith traditions, my faith experiences, and what I was experiencing with God was totally off the chart for what I had been told, this is what you're always going to be able to do and think and experience, which was also a preliminary experience of getting to seminary Mm -hmm. to say that, yes, you know, I may be a woman. I still can go to seminary. Not only that, as an out lesbian, you still can go to seminary. Mm -hmm. You are called. Mm -hmm. God's not saying you're called if you will do away with these things. So so all of this unfolded into this kind of amazing sort of conversation with Scott about where do we fall in these places and realizing that it's a not a morphing necessarily, but it is Mm -hmm. it. We move between these stages. We start with something basic Mm -hmm. to the human spirit. There is a spiritual piece of all of us and it doesn't necessarily fit any particular mold except when people insist that it should fit a particular mold (laughs) which then becomes those stages pieces if we find that freedom to ask questions and move forward some of us will and others of us will uh, willingly settle into what we're always told Mm -hmm. um, because it's comfortable and it's safe and it's easy Mm -hmm. and it's all of those things Mm -hmm. well let's talk about the stages because that because I did exactly what you said when (laughs) when uh, when Marge told me about the book and I started reading about it then the first inclination is to go okay that one's not me though oh there I am Um, so let's talk so they're according to Fowler and um, there are six stages Right. And um, so the first one starts in there and they're sort of um, aligned with developmental stages as well. So mm-hmm. it's not just spiritual development. It's sort of you're developing as a human being, too. And they're sort of tied together, which I think is the important part of the title. Stages mm-hmm. of faith development. Mm-hmm. And then the piece about human psychology. But the part that got me was the quest for meaning. Sure. So, yeah, sure. it's it's all connected. OK. So the first one he calls undifferentiated faith. And I liked that one, and that one, uh, and you can explain a little bit more, but that's an infancy. And that, my understanding was, it's sort of about, you know, infants sort of have this total trust for their caregiver. And because of that trust, then you're able to sort of um, expand that onto something else. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not, I don't know what years um, a human psychologist would consider infancy, but those young formative years. Mm-hmm. And I think what I learned in the experiences with adults certainly is that when they realize that they don't have the Bible experience or the background of faith tradition, a faith tradition, because there are people who have never either gone to church or not gone with any consistency, when they start looking for some kind of spiritual meaning in life and they go to a church they think might be safe, they're at that infant stage. Mm-hmm. And it feels it can feel, not always, but it can feel as though, oh, great, I'm the toddler in the room. <laughs> and and that has good and bad elements to it, uh-huh. that wanting to have everything that I saw at first, it's mine. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I saw yours, it's mine. And, it's mine. And all of that about faith experiences <laughs> can still be true, too. But but the encouraging piece is, is that to remind them that, yes, you are at a young stage, a, a maturing stage, but a young stage, and, and holding that intention with real-life experiences. Mm-hmm which can be any number of things from those other stages in human psychology. Well, I think I think what's interesting about that, though, is that you could be, I, I, first of all, I don't think, at least I never even thought about it in that way, that you even go through any stage mm-hmm. of development in terms of, of spirituality, but then how it could also be so out of alignment with where you are in the rest of your life. Like You right. can be hugely developed in some areas, but really, really at infancy in other areas, mm-hmm. and that's really fascinating. Yeah. So, um, so what are the po- like? What would be a positive of that stage in terms of of 
somebody's development and capacity to sort of move forward. What do you think? I think the positive of being in that initial stage is that it's really okay to have an element of magical thinking, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in those stages where they talk about the imagination is also part of that first stage of life where mm-hmm. you're not sure of a whole lot of things because usually in that part of life you haven't had a lot of experiences. And I find as an adult my imagination has been stifled by so many realities. You know, I, I commented in my sermon yesterday about how when I started my education beyond high school, I thought I wanted to be an accountant because there are numbers, there are reasons, everything has a place, and if you don't get to zero at the end or to the equal amount on the end of either balance sheets or all of those stuff, it doesn't matter, but it really matters a lot with numbers. Yeah. With faith, there kind of is no need to have that kind of thing, and so it challenges my imagination in new, new ways. One of the jokes with some colleagues of mine is I was laughing at them about their intensity around conversations about Harry Potter. And I'm like, I just don't get the whole fantasy thing of all of this. And one of them turned and looked at me and she said, and yet you believe in Jesus and a miracle birth and the resurrection? And I went, oh. Oh, oh that's right. <laughs> so, so the imagination is an important part of cultivating, and it isn't something that comes easily for a lot of adults mm-hmm. who have life experiences who have taught them that, that there's this either-or piece of mm-hmm. if you do this, then this is what's likely to happen. Mm-hmm. The imagination has outcomes that are totally at random that may not, not make sense exactly sure. and it's an okay place to be sure. it's a scary place scary. to be yeah. which, which I think then really calls people out to finding people they trust to have those conversations about spiritual things mm-hmm. which I think is interesting because I think I think as, as human beings we go we start with being really okay with that mm-hmm. with, with things not needing to make sense and with things not needing to be concrete and then move into a place of having a real high need mm-hmm for concreteness and order and all that. Right. And then and then the evolution then is that you sort of go back. Right. That's interesting. Huh. Huh. See? <laughs> See, we still move on. <laughs> still move on. Hopefully. Maybe. <laughs> Hopefully. Which we'll talk about that okay. in a little while. It's like whether we are moving on or not. For those of you who've just joined me, um, my guest today is Marge Johnston, and she's the assistant pastor at Westminster Congregational United Church of Christ. And we're talking today about a book that's called Stages of Faith, the Psychology of Human Development and Quest for Meaning, and it's, it was written by James Fowler. That's what we're talking about. So we just talked about stage one, which was an undifferentiated faith stage. So what's the next one? What comes next? Well, stage two and, and the notes that I'm looking at are a little bit different than yours because they're from a colleague who is pretty wrapped up in the Christian tradition, mm-hmm. and, and it was language with which I could easily identify and, and see. I'm not versed in psychology at all, mm-hmm. but it made sense to me. And what this individual suggests is that it's time of explana- exploration between what's real and what's imaginary. So people start to experience things, the, the young people, and it's usually child, um, child ages 4 to 12 maybe. Okay. It depends on the individual and, and what their family life is like, what their home situations and school situations, and even if they are taken to Sunday school or a church education program, what some of those things help shape through it. And so there's these questions about what's real, what isn't, what are stories, what are facts, um, and that beginning tussle of, I hear this story, I've heard it for three years in a row through our Sunday school class, but did David really kill Goliath, mm-hmm. Goliath and was David really the little guy? And mm-hmm. was, you know, mm-hmm. so, so those tensions of what's real, what's not. Yeah, and you're starting to, because even in, in life, you're starting to sort of, um, ask those questions outside of the church tradition too, right. of um, just sort of not taking. Because what I'm thinking of is um, 
when my daughter was a little one, and she started asking me, like, prior to that, everything I said was sort of the law, mm. and it was just sort of taken for granted that anything that I said was true, and then I remember that sort of point happening when all of a sudden it was, you know, sort of this asking back for clarification or what do you mean and then you have to start thinking of you know I had to start thinking about what I was saying and so it seems like that's it's happening simultaneously because I'm the mom that's, that's why. because I'm the mom that's right because I said so <laughs> because I'm God because I'm your Sunday school teacher <laughs> that's right not okay that's at that right point. that's right that's right that's interesting and difficult to find Sunday school teachers because they realize mm-hmm. the tension if they themselves have not had some experience mm-hmm. with knowing how they arrived at those conclusions mm-hmm. Yeah, because that could be scary. Very. You know, it, because all of a sudden it's like I don't know why. Mm-hmm. That's just because it's because I said so. Because. <laughs> and that, that for me is an interesting element because we are so convinced we have to have answers for our children. That makes sense. Instead of helping them understand that even as adults we have questions mm-hmm. and that questions can be a safe place to be. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we don't have assurances of some kind mm-hmm. of answers but but we've become so convinced that, well, I'm the mom, that's why, or I'm the dad, that's why, is is the standard answer, and the kids are just going to take it. Kids don't take it. Why should we? Mm-hmm. So know. one of the things that we talked about is that, you know, stage two, and in, in, in a bit we'll talk about stage three, is these are these are stages where folks start to get stuck mm-hmm. and don't start move, don't necessarily move. It's sort of not preordained that you have to go anywhere. Right. You know, and so so how can that look? So if somebody's <laughs> so if somebody's if somebody's uh, just deciding to sort of make their life and make their place in in stage two in terms of their spiritual development, you know, how can I'm sure you've seen them? <laughs> I'm trying to think of a specific example, and uh-huh. I. Um, you know, this, I think, is also the stage where we get into right or wrong, good or bad. Okay. And then and then the questions are, well, how do you define good? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, language within the church has always been a tension. So when we talk about sin mm-hmm. and you describe for a child what sin looks like mm-hmm. um, instead of talking about evil. Well, uh, you know, you talk about evil elements. Even adults struggle with, well, what is evil? What's evil to you may not be evil to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but the idea that you're a good child a good boy or a good girl and you are a bad boy or a bad girl how does that play out in a faith development stage because if I'm bad enough and the wages of sin are death mm-hmm. oh my gosh I'm already consigned to this path yeah and why should I want to be anything more why should I want to approach a God who's not approachable because I've already been told I'm bad yeah. by a certain number of people Starting whether it's the old way. woman looking over her glasses in church at me in the pew <laughs> or whether it's actually some kind of behavior that has made me somehow unacceptable even in that faith group mm-hmm. that that place where I should feel safe, where I've been told they're going to love you because they love God. Mm-hmm. They're going to love you with everything they have, and yet um, I'm told to sit still, don't wiggle in my pew, mm-hmm. <laughs> put the hymnal back, don't write in the hymnal. I mean, all these things that make me a bad child. Um, and so how does a child actually then progress into a relationship with God, which I think is the huge piece mm-hmm. about all of this. I've got pastors, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders telling me these things along with my parents or grandparents or the neighbor who brought me to church and yet nobody's really telling me about this relationship I could be having with this divine creator holy presence that feels so distant yeah or why you would want to have a relationship with some with some entity that is you know setting out uh the criteria that mm-hmm. I really can't meet up to or which, live up to. Which is probably one of the dangers 
um, is that if what children, <laughs> this is a terrible cliche perhaps, but what children learn is by what they live, mm-hmm. then if the community in which they're trying to grow into a faith relationship um, with God and with others is stifled by what they see, which could be held in tension with what they actually um, feel, feel, yeah, or what people say and what they do mm-hmm. are incongruent, mm-hmm. then a child is left with, well, it doesn't really matter what I say or do because mm-hmm. obviously, yeah, you know, these are the adults I'm following watching. and watching. Sure, because uh, it seems like, you know, that there's sort of a discerning that's starting to happen, and yes. I think you get to that place and you're starting to notice. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the first little spark of noticing um, that, because I've always, I mean, one of the, the, the issues that I think I've consistently had Um, with some organized religions is that there's a discrepancy between what's said and you tell people from the time they're very, very young how evil and wicked they are Mm -hmm. and sinners um, and then say, go forth and be wonderfully loving people. Mm -hmm. And I just, I remember the point in my life when I kind of scratched my head and went, that doesn't make sense to me, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think you're, you know, at that stage, what he sounds like what he's talking about is you get that sort of first spark of going, huh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) hopefully. Uh, Yes, definitely. Hopefully. Okay. (laughs) So stage two, stage two. So then, so how do you, so you, so you move into stage three Um, And one of the things it says is in uh, the little notes that I took is that stage three normally starts happening around puberty, which is when a host of all kinds of things start happening. Life explodes. Yeah. So it makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense that um, that there would be all kinds of things that start happening around puberty in addition to sort of a spiritual explosion Mm -hmm. to happening. So talk about stage three. Well, I think stage three is kind of... uh, terrifying as much as it is fascinating. Mm-hmm. And and maybe that comes from not just recent work at Westminster, but in my own faith journey and experiences in a couple of other congregations where I've been an active member. Stage three, there is so much going on in life. And I try to remember my own stage three, that adolescence time, and think, wow, you know, I'm lucky. I, they used to say kids were lucky to live past the age of five. I'm pretty convinced that if you make it past five, 13 or 14 is probably the next <laughs> survival gauge. Um, and and I think what I've seen that concerns me most is that kids who are teenagers have come to this place where they they question the people they trusted most to get them to that point in life. All of a sudden, they're questioning everything about why should I believe you? Because what you told me then might have worked. Now it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell me that the reason the kid at school keeps hitting me is because he likes me. But I no longer believe that. You know, the mythology starts to fade really mm-hmm. quickly at that point, I think. And and at a faith perspective, if we as adults and educators and and leadership, lay leadership in the churches are trying to instill values in our kids, I don't know that we want to keep saying because God said so, because Jesus said so, because I said so, because I'm the mom. Mm -hmm. Um, But rather we want to find ways to ask questions. Tell me how this fits for you in the sense of being a good friend to somebody you don't like what don't you like learning how to help them find words Mm -hmm. to express themselves 
even in the faith experiences, what about the stories of Jesus most bother you? Why do you think Paul might have been off his rocker? Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, because I think our kids today are even more challenged. Our our kids today who are 12, 13, and 14, I think, are actually pushed to become more t- mature Faster. than I was. Sure. Right. Yeah, and so they're asking questions at their age when I didn't ask them maybe till I was 15 to 17. Sure. And, and that makes a significant difference, I think, even in faith conversations, that um, there are rules, yes, but they're, <laughs> they're not just suggestions or guidelines. There are rules. There are consequences for certain things, but there are benefits of certain experiences and things. And how do we help kids ask those right questions? And for people who say, you don't need to have questions. You need to take the scriptures. You need to hold those in tension with what we experience at church. And, and that is your answer. Mm-hmm. But, but real life doesn't offer that for a lot of our young people. And I think, I mean, I think there's, you know, there's been study after study that has that has looked at sort of a, an attrition mm-hmm. with young folks moving away. And I think I think that some of that does have to do with the fact that they are at asking questions, mm-hmm. really mature questions at an earlier age now. And so mm-hmm. perhaps that attrition would have been a later thing mm-hmm. in you know previous generations, and now it's happening sooner because it's like it's not even okay to ask. Mm-hmm. And nobody's taking the time to even listen to the question and figure right. out where it's coming from. And, and, and you know, and, and I think part of it, too, is that the organized religions have been structured such that there hasn't been a need to answer questions. Right. I think that's true. You know? And scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I think that's, you know, we have a lot of people then who, as adults, feel like, well, there really isn't a question, and yet there's this gnawing, internal gnawing about mm-hmm. something isn't quite right. Mm-hmm. But if I ask at church, people look at me like, are you crazy? Mm-hmm. Have you not heard? <laughs> this is the good news for you. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you can't ask questions outside of this parameter. It is an interesting thing. And I, I am not a youth minister, and I don't have any background in youth ministry stuff. But it's interesting to me to see that young people tend to move away um, from the church much more quickly, I think, too. A lot of people manage to get through it through high school, maybe. Um, And then when they go to college, everything else changes yet again. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to be the natural progression. But what I see, certainly within the United Church of Christ even, is there's a real challenge to keeping kids engaged in new ways with faith. And the fun part for me is that we consider ourselves a fairly um, open and seeking group of people who ask a lot of questions and don't expect you to ascribe to a particular creed and say, you have to believe this in order to be a part of this. But there's still an element of, of things outside the church that obviously impact mm-hmm. the, the opportunities for learning and nurturing and helping young people mature in their faith experiences as well. Mm-hmm. And kids between 13 and 15 wander off instead of waiting till they're done with high school. There are so many options for activities and things mm-hmm. that play into that. And then the challenge is do we hold adults accountable and responsible for helping shape the schedules the kids choose? Yeah. And, the, you know, it's kind of a... Well, I think sometimes you have a you have adults who haven't moved mm-hmm. far far enough along in their understanding of what it is that they actually believe to even be able to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. So how scary is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if I've never asked the questions myself, don't be asking me something that I haven't even thought of. Right. You know. Right. Um, one of the things that you know in the um, notes that I took. Um, which I thought was fascinating. It was talking about the struggle with stage three, and it and it talks about um, um, whether somebody is conscious of of whether or not they've actually chosen what they believe. Mm-hmm. So whether it was a belief that was just given to me um, by my parents, grandparents, or my culture, or um, where I grew up, or whatever, or whether I chose it, mm-hmm. and that this is the stage where you're starting to differentiate 
whether you actually chose it yourself or you didn't. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of that fight with, you know, that's your belief, not mine. Mm -hmm thing, which is sort of a teenage thing anyway. It is, and I think that it's an important part, an important time where that's where folks who are are believers in moving through stages and life stages to really capture the idea that this is about having a relationship with God, and, and even helping to understand that the language changes a little bit. What does God look like? What does having a relationship look like? Because teenagers are starting to wrestle with that. I want a boyfriend or I want mm-hmm. a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, I want somebody who loves me, who is a significant other in my life along that part of life. And and depending on how those conversations are held, which is why it's an important part of being able for churches to learn to talk about sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, sexuality and healthy sexuality really does have an element of, of need mm-hmm. within the, fi- the faith confines because it is a part of real life. Sure. And, and you talk about healthy modeling of all of that. And then the questions are, you do get to choose these things. Mm-hmm. You get to choose how close you want to draw to the Holy One. You get to find out what experiences bring you into this sense of presence or learning or growth or, you know, is it, without always personifying God, is God disappointed if I make this choice as opposed to this choice? And and it comes back to that choice piece, too. Mm-hmm. There are so many choices at that age. Sure. So. Sure. Overwhelmingly so, yeah. I think, sometimes. Yeah. And this is one of them. One of the things, and I mentioned this to you before we started, because this is the thing that struck, stuck out for me. And I want to spend a few minutes talking about this, because um, I've had lots of conversation about organized religion versus spirituality that that can be organized but tends to be a little bit less organized I think and sort of the <laughs> the disorganized the disorganized religion. religion versus organized religion the dualities we live <laughs> thank with thank you thank you and and so this is the statement that came out of the the um one of the um reviews that I saw of this book um And this person said, Fowler comes right out and states that religious institutions work best, and I put that in quotes, work best, if the majority of their congregation stays in stage three. So there's sort of a a push, if you will, um, pressure Mm -hmm. to keep folks um, from moving into the part where they start to question, um, is this my choice versus what you're handing down to me. But there's mm-hmm. sort of a pressure to keep the majority or the critical mass in that place. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really fascinating because I was looking or thinking back to some of the experiences I've had in organized, organized religion, and that seems to be true. Mm-hmm. I think that it is true, and it's a bit scary because I think that the segue between stage three and stage four um, stage four where people actually really start to take things apart about what they've always been told um, is kind of like a teenager who wants to move out but doesn't know exactly how to make that happen. So in a way, if the congregation that gathers can be held as a unit and told that they'll have everything they need by virtue of being a part of this kind of thinking and group, and as long as you don't move outside of that, you're welcome to stay here at the house. Um, once you start to move outside of that, we're going to ask you for your keys back, and we're going to ask you to find someplace else to do your laundry, and we're going to ask you to <laughs> sell your own refrigerator <laughs> kind of thing. You know, it's that, that piece of the an individual or even a number of individuals might be having these parking lot conversations, as we call them, and not talking about it inside the church mm-hmm. instead of creating safe places for those conversations to happen in the church because they're met with constant 
these are the answers. This is what you need to know. And, and, you know, this is a challenge to folks of mine who are not just clergy colleagues, but people who are people of mature faith. Why do we feel so convinced that we have the answers? All I know for me is that I have answers for me, mm-hmm. but oftentimes even those answers can change. That's right. You know, from one time I read something to another time I read it because my experiences will have shifted that. Why do we try to get people to conform to this one way of thinking and stay there? And, and I think that it's a dangerous thing if a church thinks that once a person has come into that congregation, that church at that time, that it's always going to be that way. Mm-hmm. People grow if they're actually in relationship with each other and with their sense of who the divine is. They will grow. And, and I think we need to celebrate when people find new ways to experience sacredness in life and honoring the sacred in each other and all that surrounds them. And if it means they're somewhere else to worship it and experience that with their sense of the holy, hallelujah, you know. But isn't that, I mean, but, but for real, though, isn't <laughs> I mean, in terms of keeping, I mean, let's say you have a little church <clears throat> congregation and, I mean, because I'm thinking about it because um, Fowler sort of comes from a psychology mm-hmm. standpoint. So if you think about it from the, the standpoint of a psychologist, so you teach them how to ask their own, eventually you teach them how to ask their own questions, and you sort of work yourself out of a job. Basically, is if you're really good, that's what you're supposed to be doing, right? So if you think about it <laughs> from the standpoint of a church, if you help your congregation move out of stage three into stage four, are you not working yourself out of a congregation? Yeah, see, you're going to ask me for something that I have to really admit personally. <laughs> like, you know. No, I, I don't see it that way. And maybe this, this is today's perspective. Okay. Yesterday it might have been different. But today, tomorrow may be something, tomorrow may be something else. Yeah. I think that as a clergy woman, as someone who is a faith leader, um, my responsibility is to accompany people on the journey. Now, the fun for me is is that while I would like to see people grow, and sometimes it might mean they're not with my congregation and in my space, um, ideally, if they're going to grow, they'll stay and grow with us, and they will challenge and invite questions of me. And we will find ways to take what we hold as the sacred text to say, so what do we do with this? Mm -hmm. And now that we're in this stage, what do we do with this? Um, For example, I think that... um, People understand a basic message of Jesus to to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give something to drink to those who are thirsty, visit those who are sick and those who are in prison, and reaching out. And that might look like one angle at one point in the congregation's journey. Mm-hmm. For some people, they're comfortable giving money to programs that help support that. For other people, they're more up to their elbows in it and getting dirty and and Mm -hmm. out on the streets Mm -hmm. doing it. Mm -hmm. For others still, they're going to move to a different level where they want to start a program that works in tandem with something else in the community that says, look, we're going to share this journey with you. What are you guys doing? Well, here's what we think we can bring to the table. Mm -hmm. And I think even that reflects spiritual maturity. Mm -hmm. And, And to be able to hold people in that and say, you still get to have your individual faith journey, and you may be in stage three or stage five or stage two or stage one at any given moment, there's a place for you. Mm -hmm. There's a place for you to serve, to be a part of the faith community growing together. And we are not all alike or identical. And there are some people who might find it restrictive to say, y'all need some more serious answers. You need something more concrete. I need something more concrete. Mm -hmm. We won't be the church for that. Mm -hmm. But there are other communities, faith communities, that will be Mm -hmm. because we're not all alike. And maybe you ebb and flow, which is what we talked about, is that, you know, there may be a time when you, you really need to move on into to explore and experience, and then there mm-hmm. may be a time when you don't, mm-hmm. and you need to come back and have some more concrete and solid yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I really found that fascinating, and I and I do think that because um, I, one of the things that has struck me the most about when I've um, had these conversations with folks, the thing that I keep coming back with is that I've had um, now several people. The first time somebody said it, it just almost blew me away. But was that um, one of the struggles that that she had when she went through um, school, divinity school, was to reconcile what she had been taught as a child, um, the teachings that she, this was a Christian person, so the teachings that she had been taught versus what she learned in school and how to reconcile that. And so, and that was interesting in and of itself, but then the question, the conversation that we started having after that was, so then once you get out of school, then you go into an organized church where you then start perpetuating the the thing you've been taught as a child instead of what you learned in, in divinity mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. And so that's just been fascinating to me. And I've had that repeated several times by people who've had the same experience. And I really feel like that falls into this. I mean, when I saw this stage three mm-hmm. thing, it made sense to me. It's like, I think that's what it is. It's sort of, there's a comfort in that, mm-hmm. um, in that place. And and I think moving out of that sort of takes you into uncharted territory, which is really scary. Mm-hmm. So is that uncharted territory stage four? I think so. So let's talk about stage four. Good. Because <laughs> I think that's that's where I think I'm. I think I'm dabbling in four. <laughs> if I were to if I were to put myself somewhere, uh-huh. I think that's where I would be dabbling. So stage four is called individual reflective faith. Okay. So what's stage four? For me, stage four was the taking apart of everything, exactly what you were saying, the taking apart of everything I thought I'd known, everything that I thought I'd been told, even though I'd had experiences and questions and ponderings, I don't think I'd ever really torn it all apart. And and I'm, I'm not probably unusual um, for people who go off to seminary or divinity school. Um, I chuckle at the use of divinity school because yeah. I <laughs> certainly didn't leave any more divine. But, <laughs> but, but the sense was that they didn't take everything I thought I believed and threw it against the wall and watched it shatter. Mm -hmm. They actually didn't tell me anything I had to think. They told me what I needed to maybe have an informed consent, an informed decision. Um, And the challenge was not how to think, but how to begin to process Mm -hmm. thinking with being, with feeling, Mm -hmm. with breathing um, in a more holistic sense. And my frustration, the first quarter of school, was I have been in church since I was seven years old, and I am now 41, and I'm just now hearing this for the first time. <laughs> and and knowing that other people have gone through seminary years before me, why when they get to the pulpit are we not hearing this kind of stuff? Mm-hmm. You know, where do, where do they lose it between the time you leave seminary and the time you arrive in a pulpit somewhere? And so when I left, we were having some ending conversations as friends and colleagues, and I said, I really feel burdened with the idea that we have to do church differently than we've ever done it before. And I've been out of seminary five years now, and I'm still saying we have to do church differently than we've ever done it before. And what does that look like? It does mean being daring and bold and saying, look, I don't have all the answers. Here's what I was told. Here's what I thought I believed. Here's what for a time I needed to believe. Here's what a time I wanted to believe. And now I'm taking it apart because it doesn't work in this setting. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work in this context. And if you hold it in tension with the scriptures that we call sacred text, then it doesn't fit either. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, the words of Jesus, how does this play out? If you look at even the Hebrew law, how does this fit with what we say and what we do as people of faith and and in my experience as Christian faith 
um, how do we take back language about being Christians and how do we get away from the idea of liberal and conservative? How do we embrace the ideas that the teachings of Jesus were for people who are like us and some people who are like us who are still held at arm's length mm-hmm. into the community? So tearing apart everything that looks different and is scary stuff and to stand in front of a group of people on a Sunday morning is a privilege and a responsibility that I never realized how much weight it carried because if I honestly believe that we are to take apart all of those things that we hear in our younger stages of faith at whatever age, that's an opportunity to do that, but not so that we destroy the spirit of the human Mm -hmm. sitting in front of us Mm -hmm. who's hearing those things, Mm -hmm. but to say somehow that we share this tension, this fear, this anxiety, and yet there's reason to have hope and peace and to understand in new ways this concept of grace and saying look you know I I don't believe anymore in a lightning rod throwing God Mm -hmm. I don't believe that we're going to be struck deaf or dumb because we dare to ask a question about why Mm -hmm. Um, and so to take everything apart feels really scary and I get that Uh (laughs) and it is yeah. But the the reality is is that I went through three years of seminary and we took a bunch of things apart and we put a couple back together mm-hmm. and it can be done. There's and reason I think to hope. And I think what's powerful is that is that you you survived. Oh yeah, <laughs> you survived. And I you know what I, I mean and that, and that seems simplistic, but I think there's a real fear that you won't. Oh, there are you a know? lot of people who start out and, and you know a lot of people who start out in seminary who quit. Mm-hmm. It's too too much. Too, too much. Yeah. So did you go through that? Did you go through that? sort of, you know, whoa, um, um, I don't think I can take another step in this direction. I don't want to sound naive, but I left for seminary on September 10th and on September 11th woke up in Billings, Montana, Mm -hmm. watching the world in chaos as I had never seen it in my life. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to Chicago and there was literally a cop on every corner and nobody really knew what was going on, it was a week and a half later we started classes. And I feel almost like if there was ever a blessing that I experienced out of September 11th, it was that I was at my most vulnerable, not knowing anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't know the people I was living with. We were all coming from different places to share this journey. And and most of my defenses were down. And it's either all, (laughs) you're all in or you're all out. Mm -hmm. And I did not have a time when I felt like I needed to just bag it. I don't know what it was within me that said, oh, no, we're going to stick through this. We're going to finish it. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe it's just crazy tenacity that I'm not giving up here I've I've been brought to this place mm-hmm. um, and have made this commitment and I'm not going to give it up now because I've li- been living with that since I was eight or nine years old because yeah, you've been Why asking now? questions all along <laughs> right yeah. right so I think it was the right timing the right place to have all of those parts pulled apart and it was probably easier to do because I felt so vulnerable already mm-hmm. um, and certainly Chicago is a million miles away you know, I mean, I grew up in a small town of 2,600 people. What am I doing in Chicago of mm-hmm. all places? And so laying my soul bare, um, not just to God, but to people I didn't know, mm-hmm. to trust them enough to say, really, we're going to pick this apart now? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's probably the best thing that could have happened for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. You're listening to Revolutionary Spirituality. I'm your host, Sandy Williams, and my guest today is Marge Johnson. She is the assistant pastor at Westminster Congregational United Church of Christ. And we're talking today about the stages of faith. It's a book that was written by James Fowler, and we're on stage four right now, four <laughs> out of six. Um, one of the things that I wrote down that it, when it was talking about stage four was talking about the strength and we- weaknesses of stage four. And so it said the strength 
importance of stage four lie in the capacity for critical reflection um, and a willingness to face truths that may cause distancing from comfortable thought patterns or, or pain. So to be okay with that, mm-hmm. you can just sort of sit in that for a while. But, but then it says, which I thought was interesting, and I'm, and I'm thinking of people that I know that, that they, and I did this, just threw the whole thing out. Um, it said one of the weaknesses is um, that the person may put excess confidence in the rational conscious mind, thus ignoring un- unconscious, unconscious forces that become more prominent in the next stage. So it's sort of now all of that is not true. Mm-hmm. I just sort of hate church in general um, and everything that they say is a lie. Mm-hmm. And now I don't believe it unless you can just prove it to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and so that there's sort of, um, and I and I. And I didn't go to that extreme, but certainly went to the extreme of, okay, if, if that is not true, then it's all not true. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want to hear any of it. Yeah. So how do you move out of that place into, which I think is what happens when you get into the next stage, is mm-hmm. you're able to sort of incorporate the questions and the doubt and the pain and the fear mm-hmm. into a new Acceptance, I guess, of the of the wholeness of it. Mm-hmm. So, how do you how do you? Because I'm thinking about you, your journey. So, how do you reconcile in yourself that um, struggle, and and allow yourself to sit in that for however, however long you need to be in it to be able to move on? Because there is something that comes after that. I think for the first time in my life, I'm able to say I can sit in the struggle because I know that I'll come out of it. Mm-hmm. I may not know what that looks like. Um, I don't know what it is that makes that a significant phrase for me, but uh, about a month ago, um, it dawned on me that this sense of fear and anxiety that kind of is permeating our society and our culture right now with the economy and with the world situations um, can really consume someone to the point where they don't really know maybe if if having a face is worth it mm-hmm. um, in light of circumstances that are so far out of our control. Mm-hmm. But for me... I have to come back to realizing, okay, I don't have control over everything, but I do have control over some things in my life. And for those things, I need to be responsible in ways because there are a lot of people watching. Everybody I meet, um, I have an impact on their life, that ripple effect that we're not we're not individual isolated, isolated little beings. We are, in fact, impacting our community as we move through our daily lives. And if I'm sitting in a place of tension, one, being able to admit that I'm not real sure or convinced about something mm-hmm. is not a bad thing because I also have at the core of my own being a sense of knowing I've been in a place of uncomfort, a discomfort before, and I've been able to move through that to a new place. So at the back of my mind, I might be uncomfortable, but at the back of my mind, I know there's something else coming, mm-hmm. keep moving, or sit still. So sit still. Don't be afraid to sit still in that and let it be. Um, authenticity has become such a much more real experience for me that I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of secrets anyway. <laughs> so authenticity in what way? Authenticity in life. Um, I am who I am. And, and to be able to live without shame or without apology, um, but to be real, to be kind, to be considerate, I don't always have to agree with everybody or everything, but I also don't have to step on somebody because they're different or they have a different opinion or approach. But to say, I see how you might think or experience that. I don't get all knotted up when I have somebody tell me, I have no patience for organized religion. Um, I don't have any patience for the institutional church. 
I don't have any will to be a part of a group of non-thinking but feeling emotional people um, who sit in the pews and don't do anything to change the world. It's all it's a gathering of uh, hypocrites. Um, I don't I don't worry about them. I worry more, and heck, yes, worry is maybe not the right word, but I feel compelled more to continue to live authentically in the community, to say and do things that are congruent, to be a person of honesty and integrity, and challenge other people to do the same, Mm -hmm. to find ways to make a difference where you can and where you can't move on. Don't poke fun at those who do. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't try to... um, to do what you can't realistically do and, and move along. There is plenty of work for us to do. Mm-hmm. No one should feel lazy about anything. And it's not all about money. It's about using your hands, your heads, and your hearts mm-hmm. and, and helping shape the community. And as a person of faith, you have a sense of someone else, something else that helps give you power, energy, and strength. Find that. Go do that. Um, mm-hmm. So so that, so it sounds like you're moving. You've moved through or maybe not um the the stage four sort of (laughs) i um, don't know today i think i had a stage one (laughs) moment (laughs) so the stage stage four sort of dynamite Mm -hmm. of everything um into stage five Mm -hmm. so would you say that you've approached that let's talk about stage five a little bit so stage five is called conjunctive faith and it's i my interpretation of it was it's just sort of a um not sort of well, sort of bringing back together, but not sort of from the way that it was, but mm-hmm. in a new way. Mm-hmm. I guess that's how I saw it. I had an image of Legos, um, in a way, because you watch kids play with Lego blocks, mm-hmm. and yeah. I have not been to Legoland, but I've seen my nephews with a ping-pong table covered in uh-huh. Legos. Ping-pong table has never seen a ping-pong ball. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they do these fascinating projects and building things and reconstructing things, and when they take them all apart, then they do something new with those same blocks. Mm-hmm. And so they have the same pieces. They have windows, and they have wheels, and they have pointy pieces, and they have longer pieces and things. And one day when I was goofing around, I took all of the red blocks, and put them all in one place and made this thing. And they were like, that's boring. It's all one color. <laughs> yes, but it's something new. It is not what you have made. <laughs> and so in a way, this, this stage five piece, I think, um, is a place of assimilating ideas and, and a lot of pieces of the journey from all the stages. We don't lose any of those pieces. Mm-hmm. They're that continuing process of who we are becoming and uh, new ways of, of doing more than just tolerating but accepting people where they are, new ways of of seeing that so we're not the same in how we think about something. But wasn't that fun? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we did something together, and it mm-hmm. was great fun, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a challenge for me personally and professionally to say we may not see eye to eye theologically with some other faith communities in our, in our larger community of Spokane. We have good work to do. We read the Bible. Mm-hmm. We might understand that phrase differently, mm-hmm. but what's our responsibility in action? What do we do with that? Mm-hmm. And when we pray, we may pray differently. We still pray. And if we say we're praying to the same sense of the holy, then our answers may be different. But I'm not you. I'm not going to hear your answers. You're not going to hear my answers. We still have work to do together. We still have opportunities together. Um, and that sounds like that sounds like um, just from stages of development, um, sociological development. It's just like that sounds like when you reach adulthood. Yeah. You know that you. You're, it ceases to be focused on the self, and it's more sort of a focus on understanding, having empathy for other people, and understanding that there's a whole world out there that's mm-hmm. outside of my skin. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like it's that. 
which I think then points back to the question earlier about stage three and why mm-hmm. more people in churches might actually stay in stage three. Mm-hmm. It's not that they aren't adults, mm-hmm. but how is it that they don't move through those next phases as adults even? Mm-hmm. Um, why are more adults in congregations comfortable sitting in stage three instead of bringing with them their experiences, their hopes, their abilities? What is the, the stop gap from being able to do more than tolerate but to accept. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you think it is? I mean, I'm curious. I don't I don't know. I don't yeah. know if it's fear. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Because, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't need, I mean, I, I would hazard to guess some things, but I really don't know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think, um, I, I think the, I think part of what would make it easier, I think, is if folks knew that you don't lose anything. Because mm-hmm. I do think there's a fear that you lose um, something that I hold dear because I, I think for for some folks spirituality is not just what you believe I mean it's really a core mm-hmm. at the core who you are mm-hmm. I mean, it's a piece of who you are and so it's like if you if I question that then it's like I'm questioning more than just a belief system I'm questioning you know what's at my core and mm-hmm. that's that I don't know that I want to do that and it could be scary. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I, but I'm thinking um, one of the things that I that I wrote down about um, stage five is that, um, so it says stage five is learning how to re-engage with some type of faith that is beyond our rational control, um, and we can recognize partial truths that any religious tradition might offer, but may choose to re-engage with it anyway. Mm. And so um, that which is interesting. So it's like you're seems like instead of um, this or that, heaven or hell, mm-hmm. black or white, mm-hmm. it becomes more about, you know, being able to be okay with the, the duality, which is what mm-hmm. we were talking about, the contradictions. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are, uh, I don't know enough about this area, but the, the idea of pluralism is a challenge mm-hmm. for many faith traditions. Mm-hmm. They're not comfortable with that. Yeah. They live much more into the either or. It has to be this yeah. way or that way. Yeah, that's scary stuff to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I like or. rules. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm an older child. I like rules. <laughs> I break them considerably. <laughs> but I, I think, as a person of faith, when I realized that God really didn't care about the either or, mm-hmm. um, it kind of took the sting out of why not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, and I think it's like it becomes not either or, but it becomes and, not mm-hmm. this or that, but this right. and that, which right. I think. Which which also can be very scary because I feel like I lose my identity and I, I just looked at the clock and we're running out of time and we have one stage left so let's do this really okay. fast um, because <laughs> it's like I got caught up in the conversation so stage six is universalizing faith so that's like wow um, that's like the highest attaining one which <laughs> not folks many folks this is we're talking Gandhi now um, so what's that one. Well, Fowler is very clear in his book, um, I think. He makes a comment that followers of Christ in particular in this stage of faith are exceedingly rare mm-hmm. um, and that it takes a lot for people. And I think that it's interesting. I, I, I think that the sense is a lot of people who live into stage six may not get recognized for having been who they were until after they're no longer with us. Sure. <laughs> and sure. that's rather terrifying. Maybe I don't want to go to stage sure, six. No. <laughs> I have things I want to do. Yeah, exactly. exactly. No, that's right. But I think that it really... Um, it is a rare person, probably because of the challenges, and maybe it's those people who reach that place where they fear nothing, um, and they're willing to risk everything, mm-hmm. whether they're right or wrong, 
isn't the issue. Maybe they're both right and wrong. Mm -hmm. They love life intensely and intentionally, and yet they could live without their life because they're doing something else. Gandhi. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, we we can only aspire to that. There we go. <laughs> well, I want to thank you for being a guest on my show today. Time Thanks, just Andy. flew. It just flew by. My guest today was Marge Johnston. She's the assistant pastor at Westminster Congregational United Church of Christ. Thank you for being here. We were discussing um, a book called Stages of Faith, The Psychology of Human Development and Quest for Meaning, which is written by James Fowler. You can Google it and find it. That's how I did. It's a great, great book. Um, wonderful reading. I invite you to join me in a couple of weeks when I will be back. And um, I hope that you have a wonderful day. Thank you for joining me. We are the ones. We are the ones. We did.